0: Here we are, we're continuing again with the idea of secure, God and Gideon. We are, it's been really exciting to to listen to John kind of work his way through this story. This is one of the more vivid stories that you find anywhere in the Bible, where God is about to do a really important thing with his people. And we've seen the way that Gideon kind of struggles along with that process a little bit. And today we're going to see the end of the beginning. Um, we 're going to end up at the place where um, Gideon gives God his final test that he has for God, and then goes on and starts doing the thing that God's commissioned Gideon to do. The people of Israel are in trouble. God wants to use Gideon as a leader to get them out of trouble. But as we 're going to see today and we 'll see especially next time, Gideon kind of struggles in that process. but what 's important about this is that anytime we talk about that, that God doesn 't struggle in the process himself and so we're gonna we're gonna see that final part of that process today. So, as we get going, the idea of names seems really important here. Um, so my name is Bob Ramsey. Officially, my name is the Reverend Dr. Robert Lee Ramsey Jr., M.A., M.Div., Ph.D. candidate. Um, That's officially my name, if I had to use all of those things. And look at that. Awesome. Thank you so much, John. Um, But that's officially my name. Now, I've had a lot of other names along the way. I've had nicknames. I'm not sure. You know, some of those are things that I've done. Um, Some of those are the fact that the church has trusted me with leadership. That's why I get to use the term reverend. I have junior at the end of my name because my dad decided to give, give me the same name he had. And I'm not quite sure what that was about. I I never did ask him if that was a sense of hopefulness or a sense of, man, I didn't do very well with this name. I hope you do better. Or I I wasn't quite sure what that was about. But, you know, our names can matter for a lot of different things. Um, You know, and sometimes names are an expression of hope. Sometimes they're uh, some vision. Sometimes they're a tribute. Sometimes they're ironic. Sometimes they're meant to kind of... Run you down a little bit. Um, for some reason, when I played sports in high school, I led the team in nicknames. I, I want to think that that was because people liked me, at least that's how I'm remembering it. but I don't know. So I, I had several. One of them was, if you're old enough to remember this, was Rambus, because um, I'm really nearsighted, and at the time to play sports uh, like contact sports like football and basketball. I had to wear these really big, thick black glasses like Kurt Rambis wore back in the day for the Lakers. Um, and so that was, I think, okay. Um, another one was Rocket, because I was fast and people like to alliterate, and so they used, they used Rocket along the way. Although that had the bad effect of when I played football in high school. Since I was the fastest guy on the team, every time we did sprints, guess who had to finish first? Everyone or the coaches would yell at him for dogging it. That was... That was me. And, you know, sometimes nicknames can be somewhat ironic as well. Sometimes you'll know a guy that's really big whose nickname is Flacco, which is skinny in Spanish slang. It doesn't mean elite in Spanish slang. If you follow the NFL, it just means skinny along the way as well. well. I'm saying all of this because of a discovery I made this week when I was getting ready for the text. I had noticed that Gideon doesn't have... The usual theophoric name that people have in the Bible, meaning theophoric meanings, you have God's name in the middle of your name. So you'll notice that a lot of the people in the Bible have the word El or Yah or Yo in their name. Like Elijah has both. So Elijah means the Lord is my God. Yah or Yo is is the Lord's name, Yahweh. And El is short for Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for God. And I'd noticed, noticed along the way, so like even Gideon's dad has a, a theophoric name, you know, his, his name um, means the Lord is fire or the Lord does stuff or something like that, but Gideon doesn't have either El or Yah. And so I decided to, I, I, I looked it up and saw what his name meant, and I was Surprised to find out that it was kind of a nickname. That what Gideon means in Hebrew is chopper, like a guy that chops things up. Now, if it's affectionate, it would be choppy, or if you know him well, it'd be yo, chops, or something like that. But his name, Gideon, means a guy who chops things. Now, again, names sometimes have a certain destiny to them. They have a certain thing. And do you realize that once you know that, it sort of takes the error out of the story? So, if you've been following along, what's happening is the Lord's people are really under pressure. Um, the Midianites are coming, and things have just been awful. And so, the Lord is going to raise up somebody to deliver them. And if you've been with us each of the weeks, so the Lord interacts with Gideon, they talk back and forth, and then the Lord tells him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and tear down the altar to Baal, the Canaanite god that everybody's following, and I want you to chop down the Asherah pole, Asherah being Baal's consort, and get rid of that. And as we finished last week, that's exactly what Gideon did. But then it occurred to me, all of the tension goes out of the story. You know, it's like, is Gideon going to do what he's supposed to do? Will he chop down the Asherah pole like the Lord asks him to do? Will he accomplish the Lord's goal? Well, if the guy's name is Chopper, you kind of know how that's going to end up, right? And it did. So, The other thing I want us to do today, besides just chuckle at that, is John has done a great job of looking at the stories in detail. And I want to take a step back and look at the story that we've just been going over from 10,000 feet and get a sense for the flow of what's happening. Because a lot of times what a storyteller tells you or wants to tell you is based on kind of you understanding how the story is supposed to go. And just like people have names that sort of give us our certain trajectory and, and direction, stories have types or names. You know, if you sit down to watch a romantic comedy, you have certain expectations for how that's supposed to go. What kind of movie is this? This is a romantic comedy. Okay, I know what's supposed to happen. What kind of movie is this? Oh, it's an action movie. Okay, I know what's supposed to happen. You know, what kind of movie is this? Oh, it's sort of a film noir detective story. Okay, I know how that story's supposed to go. Well, biblical storytelling is like that as well. And just as, by the way, I'm using the term story to describe the Bible. I don't think what the Bible is is just stories. It's not made-up stuff. But what the Lord did when he inspired the biblical writers to write these stories is they are stories, They're not just stories, but they are stories, and they develop much like the other stories that we're used to. And so, using the language of story is a really good way to get at what I think God wanted to do. You know, he could have just told us the stuff he wanted to by just making the Bible a bunch of bullet points. Okay, things to know instead of the book of Judges. Know this, know this, know this. But instead, he decided to give us stories. And so, faithful reading means we want to read it in terms of what kind of story it is. You're going to be really unhappy and miss a whole lot if you watch a romantic comedy and expect it to be a Western, right? Or if you expect the Western to be, um, you know, a dark Scandinavian drama or something like that. Um, And so it's important to know kind of what we're reading. And so at the beginning of the Gideon story, we're reading a story that's called a judge cycle, Now, there's nowhere in the Bible that says this is a judge cycle, but it's just something that people observe. It's called a judge cycle because these stories are about judges, and they're called cycles because they tend to move in a circle. Um, And when we meet Gideon, this is about the fifth version of a judge story or judge cycle that we've experienced. And they have typical parts, just like a romantic comedy has typical parts, right? The couple, they have the meet cute part at the beginning where the couple meet and then something pulls them apart and then the story is going to be what's going to do to get them together and then they're together at the end and we all go away happy. Um, A judge cycle has certain parts and you as the reader, we as the reader can expect to see certain things along the way. And so it goes something like this. It starts off with Israel, it uses the phrase that Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then the next thing that happens along the way is it says that the Lord punishes them. And so this is what we saw at the very beginning. It says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. That language, give them into the hands, is repeated over and over again. This is a very formulaic story type. Um, It goes almost exactly the same way every time. Now generally, when that happens... When people use really any kind of storyteller, whether it's the Bible or somebody making a movie, when they're using really established patterns, it either means they don't like you and they think you're dumb and they're just going to give you a formulaic story, or they think you're smart and they're going to vary off of it and use that formula in interesting ways. Well, one of the phrases I like to use is the writers of the Bible like you and they think you're smart. And so, they will often use these patterns in really interesting ways. And that's part of what's happening here in Gideon's story. So, what happens next in the cycle, the third part is usually that Israel cries out to the Lord. But that's not what happens here. That's not what happens in our story. Instead, if you're following along in a dead, dead tree Bible, it's Judges 6. If you're looking on a device, it's also Judges 6, actually. Um, those things don't change, you know. But, but what we would see next is usually after the Lord has given them over in the hands of the Midianites, the next thing that we would expect in the story would be, and then Israel cried out to the Lord. It's the same word that's used when Israel cries out to the Lord in the Exodus. So it's a, it's a really common thing in the, in the Bible. But instead, it goes off in a different direction. And it says, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountains, the cliffs, the caves, and the strongholds. And I I know this grabbed a lot of you guys because several people have mentioned this phrase to me in the last couple of ways about when we're away from God, we just get stuck and we're hiding out and we're trying to do whatever, as as John helped us see a couple weeks ago. And then it it says, whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza in the extreme south and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. And they came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels and they invaded the land to ravage it. And now we finally get to the part that we expect... The Midianites so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out for help. But notice what he did here. And I, and I think the, the way we slowed down and looked at it was important because anytime you break the pattern, you're trying to help people see something. And I think the writer here really wanted us, and I say the writer because we don't know who wrote Judges, but it's written, so it had to have a writer, right? Um, so... He really wanted us to live with this, and he slows way down so you can almost just feel what it was like for the Israelites. He uses lots of numbers, lots of imagery. He really wants us to get a sense for just how bad things were and how bad things were going for the Israelites. And it's because of that that they call up. They call out to the Lord. Now, normally, what happens next in the cycle. The Lord raises up a judge or a deliverer. That's why it's called the book of Judges. So he raises up somebody, and then that person will lead the Israelites to thump with the Lord's help and the Lord's power, their enemies, and then usually they have peace for 40 years, and then they fall back into sin, which is why it's a cycle. They just keep going around and around and around like that. So that's what we would expect next. But instead, something completely unexpected happens. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. And this is the point where, if you know how this story is supposed to go, this is a big shift. You're not ready for this. You're like, what? Wait, what? This was a Western, and now there are spaceships flying around or something like that. That's, That's not how this story is supposed to go you know, the Lord can answer in a lot of different ways, but he's not sent a prophet. In fact, there's not been a prophet in Israel since Moses died. This is the first time that God sends a prophet. So, what we, what we are now, if we're careful readers, and for the people at the time too, we have no idea what's going to happen next. And so, we ought to pay really close attention to the prophet. But I I want you to pay attention to Gideon's response, because oftentimes new things are really hard to hear. You know, we tend to think by analogy, and when we're experiencing something really new, oftentimes all that we hear the first time we hear something new is, this is new, this is new, this is new, and not what the person is actually saying. So, the prophet comes up and says, and and we've saw it before, but He says to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I have delivered you from the hand of your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave gave you their land. So this was something that they should have just been telling themselves every Sabbath and reminding themselves that this is who we are. We were once slaves in Egypt. God saved us and brought us out of the land to bring us into this land. None of this should have been news to them. But the prophet's talking to them like it is. And then and then the Lord said, and the prophet speaks on the Lord's behalf. And then I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live. This was the big threat that the Israelites were facing, that they were going to come into the land of Canaan. There were people already there and they were going to be tempted to worship their gods, to worship Baal, to worship Asherah, to worship the other gods. And look what happened. The Lord says to him, but you haven't listened to me. So at this point, we don't know where the story is going to go next. Is this going to be a variation of the judge cycle? So is now going to God going to raise up a judge who's going to help the people listen? Is it... <coughs> excuse me. That was bad. <laughs> Sorry. So, is it, is it going to be a judge? You know, what's this judge going to do? Who's he going to be? Where's he going to come from? We are in new territory. We don't know where the story's going to go at this point. And so, instead, what we get is another big surprise. We get essentially like a record scratch, you know, and it jumps off in a completely different direction. So, instead of the Lord picking up a judge, what we get instead, as we we saw a couple weeks ago, is the angel of the Lord comes and sits down under an oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abirazite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Ah, we really are in a different movie now. Because what this is, is the beginning of another classic type of biblical story called a call story. And this is more than a judge. This is not used for just a judge who's going to come for a generation and fix things. But the people who have call stories in the Bible are people who God uses in really turning points of Israel's history. So, the classic call story that's come before this is Moses, the burning bush where Moses is out working, tending sheep, and he sees a burning bush, and God calls him and says, I'm going to use you to lead my people out of Egypt. That's sort of the the classic call story along the way. And this begins just like that. So, just like other story types, the call story has a certain pattern. And it begins basically like this. The hero, the person that God's going to use, um, is at work for his father. And so, that's what Gideon's doing. He's working for his dad, He's, but it's, it's weird. He's, you know, taking care of wheat in a wine press, which is not good and not ideal, but it's just how bad the situation is. Moses was working for his father-in-law. He was tending sheep. Um, when Jesus calls his disciples, you might remember, they're actually fishing with their dad in, in the boat. Or even Matthew, who's Kind of an outcast is basically working for his dad, the Romans. He's in a tax booth. So this carries out all the way to Jesus calling the disciples. It's a, it's a story pattern that happens all the way through the Bible. The second is the Lord or the angel of the Lord appears and talks to the person. And invariably, the hero at this point is afraid. You know, if you see a burning bush or Jesus is just still the storm or something like that, you're going to be really freaked out. And almost invariably, Moses or the disciples, whoever else this happens to, are really freaked out at this point. But with Gideon, that's not what happens. There's another big record scratch. And just at the point where we would expect Gideon to say, oh, I'm not worthy, or oh, I'm in the presence of the angel of the Lord, I'm really freaked out, um, Gideon instead says, says this. Let me just read the whole thing to you. He says, pardon me, my Lord, or sir, basically. You know, right at the point where um, we would expect him to be afraid, he sounds aggrieved, kind of grouchy. Pardon me, my Lord. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. So, we as readers just went through this part about the prophet who showed up and talked to all of Israel, and it was such an extraordinary thing, you think everybody would have remembered that, right? But does Gideon show any sign of having listened to the prophet? just one paragraph before, and I I don't know how much time would have passed, but it seems like this is a a pretty immediate situation. He has completely not listened. And what did the Lord say through the prophet right at the end? I've done all of these things, but you did not listen to me. And Gideon's first step is to be one of those non-listening Israelites. It's completely okay to go back and forth with the Lord, And to say, hey, you said it's going to be like this, and it's like this. A third of the Psalms are like that. So kind of arguing back with God is completely fine. But not paying attention and making that be the basis of your argument is kind of a bad look. And that's what he's doing right here. Now, what's really cool about this, though, is the Lord just pushes through and and continues on with Gideon. So, usually what happens next in the call story is the hero receives his mission from God, and Gideon does. He, the Lord tells him, I want you to go and cut down the Asherah pole, tear down the altar, and build an altar to the Lord. So, he, he knows what that's going to be. Um, just like Moses is told, hey, you're going to go lead the Israelites. Um, and then the hero usually will ask for a sign, and Gideon does that. And So, he's, he's doing what you do in this story. So he says, "Hey, hold on, wait a minute." As you might recall, I'm, I'm stay here, and then he goes and makes a meal, and the Lord, the angel of the Lord, makes that into a sign by zapping it with fire, and it, the whole thing consumes. And he gets it. Oh, you really are the Lord. You are, um, you know, Lord's personal name is is Yahweh. You are Mr. Yahweh. He calls him, which is the ultimate sign of respect um, along the way. So he gets it, and then the hero heads out. He heads out and goes and does it. But what's interesting here is that's not what happens next. Instead, and this is where we're going to come to the the new passage today. We're going to look at the part where Gideon lays down a fleece before the Lord. When we hit to that point, we're back to the other style of story. So if you want to follow along, we're going to go and pick this up at... um, Verse 33. So we're going to pick this up at verse 33. So normally what happens next is we've, we've done this and what we would expect for, for Gideon to go out and do this, but instead the story makes another unexpected shift and it jumps right back to the judge cycle. And we're going to get judge stories again. So here's what he does here. Normally in a judge cycle, the Spirit of the Lord comes on the judge and then he gathers Israel together and then the judge and Israel in the Lord's power, go out and defeat their enemies, and then they have peace for a number of years. And that's exactly what happens. So, we get the beginning of the story again. It says, Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples had joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So, these are the the neighbors of Israel, and they're coming from the east, and they're traveling into the valley of Jezreel, which is a, a key place, kind of right in the middle of Israel. A lot of key roads go through there. It's part of the richest agricultural part of Israel. So if you want to do bad stuff to Israel, that's where you're going to go, okay? So the bad guys are gathering in the heart of Gideon's country is is the situation there. And then, just like we would expect in the story, the Spirit of the Lord comes on Gideon, and he blows a trumpet, and he gathers the Abedazites, to follow him, his own people, his father's family, blows a, blows a horn, and they all come to him. And then he knows that he's going to need a bigger army, and so it goes on, and it says he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and into Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, so that they went up to meet them. Um, a lot of times when you see a lot of weird names in the Bible, it sort of makes it feel strange and foreign, um, but these are just his neighbors, so, imagine the situation it is Gideon is in Garden Grove, and the bad guys coming from the east are, you know, people coming from the 909 in <laughs> lifted trucks and black socks and, you know, that, that kind of thing from the 909. And what Gideon's doing is he's, is he's reaching out to his neighbors. He's reaching out to... Um, He's reaching out to the people of Anaheim. He's reaching out to the people of Orange, people of Seal Beach, Huntington Beach, all of that. He's calling them together. And, and that's how we need to hear these things. Not like, oh, the bad guys are the people in the 909. That's not the point. But just that, although it is kind of the point I made, isn't it? But anyway, that's not the point. But the point is just try to make this real for you. Don't think of this as a, a far away kind of thing. And so... He calls them all together, and what we would expect next is in the power of the Lord, they would go out and fight these guys, and the Lord's hand would be on them, and they would deliver them, and then they would have peace. We would have one or two more sentences, and it would all be good. But instead, we get another big record scratch, and we don't know what's going to happen next. And what we get is completely unexpected. Gideon's already had a sign, and the way the story is supposed to go next is God comes in and great stuff happens. But Gideon wants to talk one more time. And notice it's not to the Lord. It's to God. Watch the language he uses here. He says to God, if you you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised. And he slightly gets it wrong here. The Lord didn't promise to save it by Gideon's hand. He would do it by his own hand. But if you've really done it. And then he asks for one more sign. And the sign is, is he wants to take a fleece, you know, a sheepskin with the hair left on it, and I'm going to leave it out overnight, Lord. And when I get up tomorrow morning, I want it to be like really wet and the ground around it to be completely dry. And then I'll know that you sent me. So the Lord's like, okay. And he does. Night happens, morning gets up, and they get it, and they go out, and the fleece is sopping wet so much so that he could wring it out, and a whole bowl is filled with water. So, again, what's going to happen? And why is this so important? Remember what Gideon said to the Lord the first time the Lord showed up? Even after the prophet had spoken, he's like, where are all these wonders that our ancestors had talked about? If you're really God, if you're really here, I expect to see some miracles. And Gideon's not the only person to say that. It's hardwired into us as human beings to think that miracles are the best sign of God's presence. And he hadn't seen a lot of good things for a while. So if I'm really gonna believe you, if I'm really gonna go out on a limb for you, I need to see some more miracles. And so even after he's seen this one, he says, look, God, don't be angry with me. But how about one more? He says, let me just make one more request. And this one, he says, Let's flip it around. And this time, I want the fleece, I'm gonna lay out the fleece and I want the ground to be wet, but the fleece to be dry. And it is. Now, you may have thinking, oh, I've always heard that phrase, putting out a fleece. This is where it comes from. And you know what's interesting? This is the only place this occurs in the Bible. This is the only place in the Hebrew Bible where the word fleece appears at all. So it's not like this is a normal thing, like people in the Bible were always, oh. What's God want? Oh, then let's put down a fleece and find out. It's not like that was the case. And in fact, it just leaves it kind of hanging there. And it's fascinating. This is the last time that Gideon will actually talk to God in the entire book of Judges, in his story. And John's going to help us see that next week of where this goes. But I want to call your attention to the fact of what he's calling God here. He's using the term God and not God the Lord. Now, we use those terms interchangeably for the Lord, for God, God, the Lord. In in, in English, we like to not say the same word twice, so we'll call him the Lord in this sentence and God in this sentence or our heavenly Father or something like that. That's good form in English. Hebrew, they like to repeat things. Moreover, Yahweh that gets translated the Lord in our Bibles is his personal name. And watch this as you're reading through the Hebrew Bible. Or the Old Testament. Generally, anytime you see a character using the term the Lord, it shows connection. And anytime they're using the term God, it usually shows some distance. See, when the Lord says, I am the Lord, and that's the Lord means I am, or Yahweh means I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, that's God determining who he wants to be. And when they call him God, very often what you're seeing is the character, the person in the stories projection of their own understanding back onto the Lord. And that's where Gideon leaves it. The Lord does do these things for him, but Gideon thinks that God is doing it for him. And so, while God has been with Gideon along the way, what we're going to see next is that he immediately goes off the rails when the next stuff happens. And the way we can see this is we're already prepared for this because we've seen in a number of ways that the story's not going the way that the story's supposed to go. And when it doesn't, these are new opportunities for God to do something and instead what we see is Gideon jamming God back into his preconceptions. So that's what's going on in that that whole chapter. Having said all that, let me just quickly say three things that might make a difference for each of us. One is... Focus on the Lord and not on God. Now, this is hard to do because we use the same words interchangeably, but here's the thing. Let the Lord be who He says He is and not who you say He is. Let the Lord be who He has revealed Himself to be and not what your hurts, not what your losses, not what your expectations can limit Him to be. What we see with Gideon very clearly is the Lord is trying to do something really extraordinary. He sends a prophet to start something new, and Gideon completely ignores that because all he's focused on is his grievances, and he completely misses it. The Lord is very gracious with him throughout this whole story, and all he can think of is, let me get one more sign, let me get one more sign, because he's missed who the Lord really wants to be, and he thinks that all he is is a miracle worker. God does work miracles. God does have power. But as we'll see in just a minute, that's, that's just a part of who the Lord is. And if we focus on just that part, if we focus on just the parts of who the Lord is that we want Him to be or we think we need Him to be, we're going to be missing out a massive amount. It's hard for us. It's hard on the Lord when we do that to Him as well. So I just want to challenge you to think about that. When you think about God in various parts of your life, am I really dealing with Him As he's told me he wants to be? Or is it just my really half formed prejudices and unthought through experiences? Or is it my fears and my nervousness manifesting itself along the way? So let the Lord be who he is. Let him be. You know, his name means I will be who I will be. So trust him enough to enter into that. Don't make the Lord fit into some kind of box or wineskin, as Jesus used along the way. But let the Lord be that. Another thing I'd, I'd like you to suggest, I'd like to suggest and, and want you to think about, is that most of us have something in our life that we would love to see a miracle happen. And it's very easy to say, "Oh, the Lord was totally present because something miraculous happened." And again, the Lord does do this. But what you'll see is that even though Gideon has received several miraculous signs, it doesn't make any difference. And what you'll see repeatedly throughout the Bible is that people that got to see miracles, it often had very little effect on them down the road. Miracles are, are actually not very good by themselves at producing faith. And, and, you know, there's there's this sense that a lot of us have, man, if I was in the Bible times where these kinds of things were happening, the stuff I struggle with, there's no way I would struggle with that. If I could just see what Gideon had seen, if I go out to lunch and my lunch is consumed with fire, there's no way, (laughs) there's no way that I could ever not totally be with the Lord for the rest of my life. And yet Gideon had seen his lunch consumed with fire, and the next thing, I don't know, two days later, he wants to see wet sheepskins. God is a worker of power. God is a worker of wonder. God does do miracles. But if you count on them as a way to generate faith and faithfulness in your life, it's not going to work so much. Here's what does work. Listen. The jumping off point was the Lord speaking through the prophet and saying, you know, guys, the, re, the way things have really got wrong is you don't listen to me. And if you really want to be transformed, if you really want to experience God's power in your life and transformation and walk in the power of the Spirit, listen to what He says. So if you need a miracle, go ahead and pray for that. But if you really want to be changed, identify something this week that the Lord has been speaking to you about and listen to Him. So it might be, hey, trust me, on this. It might be, hey, ask me for this. It might be, hey, you know that person I've been telling you that you need to love that's hard to love? Love them. Sometimes it's not that complicated, and the change comes when we embrace the parts that aren't complicated and really aren't that hard to do, but somehow our wiring makes them hard. So if Ajwa, come back up. Here's what we want you to do. Listen. Stop trying to fit God into a particular box and let him be who he wants to be. Don't expect God to only show up in the miraculous, but expect God to show up especially in the day to day. And God will show up in the day to day will show up in the details of your life when you listen, when you love the person that's hard to love, when you trust the Lord with the thing that you just can't let go of, when you forgive the person that you just can't forgive, listen, and God will do something amazing.